He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Right here and right now, this is the Triple Threat Podcast, episode number 44 of this little thing called the Triple Threat Podcast, brought to you on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting platform, which you can get on Podbean and Player FM and Podomatic and iHeartRadio and Spotify and iTunes and all the great places you can get your podcasts. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only John Paz. And we're also joined on the show by uh, somebody who you might know, you might love him, you might remember him from such wrestling promotions as World Championship Wrestling and Extreme Championship Wrestling. And we're going to welcome in our third partner here, the one and only franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode number 44. Oh, I love that guy. Is he on? Shane, are you there? I know him. <laughs> What's happening, guys? Oh, man. It's episode number 44. We're uh, now one full week removed from uh, the WrestleCon, WrestleMania weekend, getting ready for some spring. I'm watching the uh, the Mets play a little uh, <laughs> listless baseball here tonight on a lovely Tuesday night. And uh, I guess you could say no complaints, but Shane, how's everything going in uh, in your neck of the woods out there in, uh, in the Berg? Well, well, I, I got to chuckle when you say, like, you mentioned spring because it's been snowing for the last day and a half here in Pittsburgh. Nothing lame, <laughs> of course, but, you know, snowing, like, you know, I've had enough of this goddamn winter shit. Like, let's get, let's get it rolling. Let's get some sunshine blowing finally. Good God. It's, you know, like, I like Pittsburgh, but I want it to be the bird. You know, it's, it's time for the sun to come out and the birds start singing and, and all that kind of good jazz. I think that you should have a map out, and during certain parts of the year, you have to have all your bookings be in uh, warm climate. So at least for two days out of your uh, your seven, you might be off in uh, you know in, in a Royal Caribbean, or you might be off uh, wrestling uh, you know a little uh, a little sweat on the old ground rather than a bur yeah rather than a burka, some gloves you know yeah. and, and 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 your heat pumping uh, you know to a hundred degrees. I, I don't want to sound like a teacher or anything. I don't, I don't think you mean Burke. I think you mean Parka. 
<laughs> a park or whatever. Like you know a, what I meant. If you've got a face like this, you've got to show it. I mean, you can't, you can't just... And my old partner said, Johnny Ace, my face is my gimmick. <laughs> Classic Johnny Ace <laughs> line of all time. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I have the, the Mets versus the Nationals game on right now, and they're playing in New York, and it's got to be 35, 40 degrees out on the field. So you got all the players, you know, the, I'm not going to call them out of the car, but maybe the Latin American players are, are bundled up with the hoods over yeah. their heads and long sleeves on and the gloves because they're not used to 35-degree weather, so they're all bundled up. And um, watch this. I'm like, it's closer to May than it is March. Like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, no kidding. It's just a crazy. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know if you guys heard about it or saw it or anything, but uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, they, I mean, Minnesota got nailed this past weekend with like 13 inches of snow, like 300,000 people out of out of power, and it's been a crazy, crazy year. You know, it's uh, but but hey, the, the planet's melting. Let's just uh, let's just keep that in mind. So let's uh, let's enjoy let's enjoy the cold weather because we're gonna melt here by by Christmas time. Yeah, it's an inconvenient truth, uh, if I recall correctly. The, uh, the 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 Al Gore vehicle that uh, kind of had a little bit of buzz and it kind of fizzled like a uh, like a fart there in church. But Shane, you had a big weekend this past weekend. A familiar face, whether it's hot or cold weather. Another a chapter in the storied rivalry between you and the one and only Tommy Dreamer, the innovator. Ah. So yeah, I had to bring how that was it tonight, didn't you? Yeah. So how was it out there in Ohio taking on Tommy Dreamer? It looked like saw some pictures circulating on social media. Man, you two must be like riding a bike, but I'm sure every time you look across uh, and you see those now the polka dots of the, of Tommy Dreamer, yeah. it's always gonna be always gonna be a fun night. It, it's it's like the proverbial nails on the boards, you know, like the Dean Douglas character that I used to watch when I was a little kid growing up. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, you know, but the, here's the thing that, that my my takeaway from the weekend, uh, both in Thomasville uh, on Friday and uh, Owensboro on Saturday, was that both houses were substantial. Uh, you know, the, the the show in Owensboro did you know a, a very significant number in a building that, from what I'm understanding from the people that were working the building, the management of the building. This is a building that the WWF used to run back in the day. Uh, beautiful building. And uh, there was a substantial crowd, and, and they were bouncing off the walls. It reminded me very much of, uh, you know, back in the day when ECW, WCW, WWF was running, and you'd go to an independent show and you'd see a packed building, and the fans were just bouncing off the walls. That was very reminiscent of what Saturday night looked like in Owensboro. And Friday night in Thomasville, to, to a lesser degree, is a little bit smaller building. But, you know, you're seeing this resurgence in, in independent wrestling. And, A, I think in large part because there's just so many names out there, like uh, like Tommy Drummer and uh, <laughs> you know, guys like that that, you know, that, that are, you know, that the fans still want to see. So, uh, you know, for, you know, all kidding aside, Tommy Dreamer and I have wrestled, you know, I, I, I would love to see if anybody's ever tabulated the number because it's got to be well into the hundreds and hundreds of matches. And, you know, I, I know what Tommy's going to do before he thinks it. 
You know, it's uh, and I'm sure the same for him looking at me. Uh, you know, to be able to go out there and you know, but I'm like I've said it on Twitter all day yesterday, and I didn't get a chance. I'm sure I would have said it again today, but I didn't get a chance except to throw a few little blurbs up there about the podcast episode 44 tonight. Uh, Tommy, you know, I, I want to know why I get booed, why I'm called the heel, the bad guy, because. Tommy Dreamer, I didn't use a foreign object. I didn't cheat. Tommy Dreamer gave me a ball shot. He hit me with, he brought a can in that he ended up using against me, a garbage can, a chair he brought into the ring. He had three fans attack me at ringside. And Shane Douglas played by the rules the entire time. And yet I got booed out of the building and they cheered for Tommy Dreamer. And I, I'm big in the fans. What's what's the what's the recipe? If I walked on water, it's like Donald Trump. If I walked on water and cured cancer today, I'm going to get booed. What's up with that? I, I it's really starting to give me a complex. I'm starting to feel like you know very self conscious when I go out and wrestle because I keep getting booed against guys like Tommy Dreamer. And I hell, I've tried playing by the rules and I still get booed. So I might as well be the dirtiest player in the game again. I like <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, one of your partners here uh, has been saying it for the last uh, 48 hours that he's also been kind of seconding that, and I'm going to welcome in John here now, because John, that's that's his point of contention, is that why is the franchise the heel when Tommy Dreamer's the one going after all the the foreign objects, John? How about you with, uh, you know, thinking that about Tommy Dreamer, kind of flipping the old uh, role reversal with uh, the heel in the face in this uh, little feud? Yeah, I was watching Twitter. I saw a couple of videos and a couple of different things. I guess the fans had posted some stuff, and Shane was uh, talking to a fan as he was going out to the ring. He was being nice to the guy. And then you see Dreamer cheating. You're doing all this, you know, underhanded stuff. Yeah. Dreamer, hey, hey, Tommy, I thought you were uh, the, the, the quintessential babyface. Why are you cheating in a match against a bitter rival? Come on. Show a little bit of uh, class, Dreamer. Come on, man. Yeah, be classy like the franchise. Come on. I mean, he has three fans attack me at ringside, two girls who I know I could have taken, and <laughs> and another kid that was pretty damn stiff. Hit me with a chop, two chops, in fact, one after the match, and security had to stop him going after him. And, 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 and they called Dreamer the baby face. I'm just... I'm scared. It's like we've truly entered the inverse universe. Like black is white, white is black, up is down, and down is up, in is out, and out is in. Because I tried playing by the rules, and you see what it got me, right? Tommy Dreamer ball shots me. He has fans attack me. He uses a garbage can, a chair, and then somehow pulls out the win, and the fans pop. It's a big chip. When I used to do that, I got booed out of the building. I got things thrown at me. I got death threats called to my house. I'm, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been doing something wrong all these years. I don't get it. Yeah, definitely uh, times have changed for sure. Now, when you go in a match like that, and obviously you and Dreamer have 20-plus years of experience against each other and 20 years' worth of a feud there, is there some sort of psychology you guys have going into the match, or is it just – kind of you guys are so used to it, it's almost like putting on a, a glove at this point. Well, it, it's definitely put, putting on a glove, but, you know, I, I got to admit, you know, all the, all the diatribe I just gave, I love screwing with Tommy Dreamer because he's, 
he's uh he's so easy to lead down the primrose path you know it's uh you know <laughs> it just is what it is you know the fans i think at this point all joking aside is that the fans have gotten to a point where you know after all these years they they very well keenly know the tommy dreamer you know uh character and the franchise character and as as i've always said you know where jim Cornette says can't put the toothpaste back in the tube uh the fans that know us and a vast there were a shitload of kids in the building that night but the fans that know us are keenly aware of those characters and the kids that were in those buildings in that building uh, on saturday night you know had watched us and it was like they you know, the Cliffs notes of uh, Shane Douglas versus Tommy Dreamer because they knew everything. And, you know, you know so the, the, the story's already laid out. You know, it's, it's, if you suddenly today said, I want to write a new chapter of the Bible and make Jesus Christ the heel, it ain't going to work. <laughs> because, you know, it's, you've got about 2,000 years of people saying Jesus Christ walked on water. So, you know, you, you're, you're going to uphill battle. And, and the same thing in wrestling fans. This is a built-in storyline that the fans know or they think they know. And so, you know, from that standpoint, from the audience reaction standpoint, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, it's uh, – but from a wrestling standpoint, going in the ring with Tommy Dreamer, I, I, I would dare say – I don't want to speak for Tommy, but we could go in there with our eyes closed and, and, and have that match. You know, it's uh, – and it's not that we do this – Tommy and I – have never ever once sat down and said, "Okay, I'm going to do this to you, and then you just back to me." We just go to the ring and wrestle, and which gets back to my point. I have said over these 44 episodes, like I say at every seminar I've ever done, is just go out there and do it, spontaneous to the audience, uh, you know, and just execute. You know, we all know how to do a body slam. We all know how to do a backdrop. Just go out and execute, and and trust me, the rest will fall in place. And, you know, luckily after all these years, Tommy Dream and I have that chemistry where we can go out and have that match and, you know, entertain the crowd. When you have him on the, you know, the, the run sheet, if you will, you know, when you get booked on the on the show and, and it's you and it's him, is that a welcome match for you? Or are you almost going in there going, oh, I wish I was wrestling, you know, some other young indie talent or some other different indie talent? Is Dreamer like a welcome match for you? Yeah, you know, in the business, we, we say oh, it's a night off, you know, and and it really is, you know. So it's Friday night. I wrestled George uh, South, and now just a little side note here that I wasn't aware of until Moose uh, uh, smartened me up to. I mean, I was aware of it as far as the, the match, but I wasn't aware that it was uh, George South was my very first match when I went to the NWA. And uh, the old 10th and Techwood TV studio where they used to do the classic Saturday Night 605 show from, uh, George South was my very first match in there. And so all these years later to do the same thing. And, you know, I I hadn't wrestled George, uh, I'm going to say in probably 25, 30 years. Uh, But the same thing, you know, you have a professional in the ring, and I count George South and Tommy Dreamer both as professionals you can go to the ring and do it pretty much in your sleep as long as you're cognizant and, and you're playing your role and they're playing their role. It's just like a, like a live action theater with no script, 
you know, just go out and do it. Uh, and yet every show, I see the kids in the back going, okay, JP, when we lock up, I'll do this to you and you do this to me. And, and they go over it and over it and over it and over it and over it. And I, and I understand that's the paradigm that they were brought up in. Uh, but, it, you know, it's – I don't I don't know how the business got to that point because it really is so simplistic if you just go out and do it. You know, it's A, it's spontaneous. Uh, if both characters, if and maybe that gets to the point, you, know, you guys have heard me talk about the teleprompter and character development and that sort of thing. Uh, I know the franchise character intimately well, and I'm sure Tommy Dreamer, Tommy, Thomas Laughlin, knows the, the Tommy Dreamer character intimately well. Uh, there's nothing either of you could teach me or Tommy about those characters. So if, if Tommy goes out and just plays that character and I go out and play this character, there's nothing we have to talk about in the dressing room. We don't have to sit there and go over it for hours. Just go out and do it. And that's where I think, you know, when you hear me talk about sports entertainment and professional wrestling, Sports entertainment would have me and Tommy Dreamer talking for six hours in the dressing room and just going out and regurgitating that. Professional wrestling has me and Tommy Dreamer not even talking before the match and going out and executing that. And, you know, if, if you've seen any of the reports back, I'm, I'm, I haven't read one, but I'm guessing that they're pretty positive because of the things that I saw on my Twitter feed in the last day or so and the reaction of the audience that night and in the dressing room, uh, you know, and, and afterwards as the fans were leaving the building. So it, it just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the plug again that the business has got to get back to its roots. And if it does that, then you, then you can go out there and have a match back, like back in the old days, you know, we would, you know, sometimes walk into the building and barely have enough time to get dressed before your music was playing, you know, so you certainly have time to sit around and talk about, I'll do this and you do that. And then I'll do this and this, and you do that and that. Uh, it was, you know, get in there, get your ass dressed as fast as you could, as quickly as you could and get your ass to the ring and have the match. So, uh, but you know, to, uh, that's my long winded answer to your question about Tommy, Tommy dreamer. And I can go out to, you know, both wake up out of a coma and go out and have a great match. That crowd was watching an all-time great rivalry. If you think of the Dreamer versus Douglas, the ultimate heel versus the ultimate babyface, what is it about Dreamer that kind of you know makes him so lovable? Yet you know, yet he kind of loses a lot. So it's almost one of those things where it's like, is he the lovable loser? Um, he's good. He's definitely good at getting his ass kicked. But you guys played each other off of each other so well. What is it about Dreamer? Well, he, he, you know, he's got, you know, he is like, he's like the big teddy bear, you know, I, I think is the, is the first thing. Uh, but Tommy has that personality. He can walk into a room and talk to anybody, somebody he has never met and make that person feel as though they're the only person on the planet at the moment he's talking to them. And that transcends when he comes out in front of an audience, uh, but also, I think a lot of that is built on, if you go back to the very early days of ECW, believe it or not, Tommy Dreamer got his ass chewed by the fans. Uh, when he was wearing the sequence suspenders and things, they they just didn't buy him. And 
you know, I, I, as much as I hate to do this, I'm going to give Raven credit because uh, when, you know, Raven and, and uh, Sandman did the deal where they caned him uh, and he took that vicious, hellacious beating in the ECW arena, you know, and his back was welted up and bleeding. That's what, that's when the fans started to turn and said, well, hey, this, you know, this pretty boy, uh, with with those gay looking suspenders is a tough son of a bitch. <laughs> and you know, and, and, and Tommy really hooked them then, you know, and, and has been with them ever since. Uh but he's also and I gotta just take this little jab because it just infuriates me. Uh no matter what time he if he comes to Pittsburgh tomorrow, he's wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers or a Pittsburgh Penguins jersey and you know, kissing the Pittsburgh fans' ass. And then if he goes to Buffalo tomorrow, he's wearing the Buffalo Bills or, you know, the Sabres. Or, or it's, just, it's just, it's so corny. But it works for him. You know, it, it, he just has that, that lovable teddy bear quality that bleeds through. He doesn't have to go out and read off the script or go out and do certain moves during the match, whatever. Uh, the fans just gravitate to him and, you know, it's it's sort of infuriating because I'm such a nice guy and such a good-looking guy and such a wonderful guy, and yet the fans just boo me out of the building. I just, no, Tommy's Tommy's just made the, he's one of those rare breeds that can make the connection to the audience. And I've always said it's it's a it's a shitload easier to make an audience hate you than it is to make them like you. And Tommy has that. It's uh, it's a rare quality. When we uh, when we had George South on two weeks ago, we were talking about you know the fact that you know he still gets in the ring on a very regular basis, and whether or not he was used as enhancement talent throughout his career is irrelevant because he still gets in the ring, and he can still put on a hell of a show. And he told us a story about wrestling Al Snow, and just the the psychology they were able to uh, put into the match and the heat they were able to get just by Al playing off the mannequin head and George you know doing the classic telling the ref yep. to get the head out of the ring and then the head coming uh, into play and the finish at the end. And it's those little things that I think a lot of fans take for granted in the grand scheme of WWE-laden sports entertainment. But on the local level, on the independent level, where we can still see Shane Douglas versus Tommy Dreamer, I mean, that's, that's a match that John and I will leave our house and, and go to watch. And I think places you were this weekend – are definitely uh, hubs for old school fans. And do you think that there are certain areas of the country where it, it doesn't matter? It could be you versus Dreamer. It could be Dundee versus Lawler. You know, it could be any yeah. of the classic rivalries that you still put everybody, those two, same combatants in the ring. You still get the same response. People still want to see you guys. Yeah. It's, you know, it just, it, again, it just goes back to a formula. You know, Bill Watts used to say black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. Uh, Tommy Dreamer is the quintessential white hat, and the franchise, I think, is the quintessential black hat. And as long as those two characters know what they're doing in the ring and portraying their black hat and white hat, uh, then it falls into place. You know, a, a note, just a little sidebar about, you know, you were talking about George South. You know, yeah, he spent his career uh, as enhancement talent, what we call enhancement talent, uh, those are the guys that get guys like me and Tommy Dreamer over uh, back in the way that the industry used to be set up. And the only reason George South never became like a star, you know, quote unquote, with quotation marks around it, 
is because George South was married and didn't want to go on the road, you know, and I, and I respect that because as much as a young kid, I was excited to go on the road. You know, it's, I've seen it too of a marriage. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of detriment to, to that as well. You know, when you hear fans talk about what wrestlers give up or anybody that goes in, in any genre that goes on the road for that, those extended periods of time, uh, it, it obviously has a very detrimental impact. And, you know, George, uh, you know, as everybody knows, is a very devout Christian, uh, lives his life that way, has been married all these years. And, you know, it just he chose for him the path that he sought to. But George South was talented enough to be as big a star as any of us uh, guys that we've been talking about, Al Snow, Shane Douglas, Tommy Dreamer, Raven. Uh, George South had all that. He just chose a different path. And I, I got to tell you, there, there, there are certain things I'm envious about in, in, in the path that George had followed. And, uh, you know, I count him as a great friend, uh, you know, somebody that all those years ago, he, he told me the story the other night, in fact. He said when I first, the, the first day I was in the NWA, Dusty came to him and said, wait, we got this new kid coming in and you know, we really want to get him over strong. And, uh, you know, they had, uh, I think, originally eight or ten minutes for the match, and that kept getting whittled down. And we ended up having some very brief time in the ring. But if you go back and watch, it wasn't just, okay, go out and punch, 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 and Shane Douglas belly to belly is being pins me. If you go back and watch that match, as brief as the time was, there still was a modicum of story told in there. And, you know, George had already been there. And so the fans knew who he was. I was an unknown coming in. And George busted his ass in that brief period that we had to make this this snot-nosed kid from New Brighton, Pennsylvania, look like I actually knew what I was doing, and I didn't. Uh, so, you know, for me, you know, all these years later to come back around and have the same experience on, on Friday night uh, working, George, is just uh, a testament to the fact that, A, we're both still here still above ground and kicking, uh, you know, and in this industry, I don't say that uh, too jokingly because as we know in the last 20, 25 years, there's been a genocide in the professional wrestling business. So uh, the past weekend was a great, a lot of fun Friday night with George and Saturday night with Tommy dreamer in two great houses. Hopefully the fans in both of those houses got the matches that they expected to see. Absolutely, yeah, and you were telling us how, you know, you had a lot of fans coming up to you and talking about the show, and we had a lot of feedback over last week's show, and we kind of ran down WrestleMania, and it was funny, I mean, we were able to talk about WrestleMania and all the stuff going on at WrestleCon in a good 90 minutes, and and we created a buzz, you know, over what we did, and WWE had about seven and a half hours put on WrestleMania, and (laughs) it was having people (laughs) beaten into submission, but we talked about the ridiculous and utter stupidity of them putting the uh, the tag belts on uh, Braun Strowman and the little boy. They they stripped them of the titles the next night, therefore rendering the entire story they were telling <laughs> leading up to WrestleMania being completely pointless and a waste of television airtime. And, you know, the thing I was telling you before we started was that the I, I got to say that the feedback on the entire storyline, Shane, because I know you're not really following it maybe as deep as uh, some others are. I mean, I'm not following it that much either, but I see it. I got to say it was about 50-50, shockingly. And and the way I describe it is, is the the 
uh, hipster snowflake current day fans that are more <laughs> into the entertainment factor, and uh, you know they they want to be, they want to laugh, they want to think things are ironic and funny and cutesy. They're the ones who liked it, and you got your grizzled, jaded, uh, you know, wait, wishing it was twenty years ago fans uh, that absolutely hated it, but. Are you surprised that even 50% of the fans today would enjoy something as ridiculous and stupid as that kind of a story? No, not, not when you see the breakdown of the audience. The way he just summed it up, I think, pretty much hits the nail on the head. Because those fans, the, the, the snowflake, I need my therapy pet and safe spot uh, fans, are the ones that want to have looked around and they've seen the wrestling fans. You know, they, they, you know, we've all seen the audiences. We've all watched the classic videos of Ricky Steamboat versus Ric Flair and Bruno San Martino versus Billy Graham and, you know, all the Dusty Rhodes versus anybody and on and on and on. And my guess is that they've watched those videos and said, look at the fans and look how much they're getting into it. And, you know, so if that's what the fans did back in the day, we should do the same thing today. They're, they're, they are uh, parroting their behaviors off of what they've seen from other fans. The only difference, guys, is that back then the wrestling was good. <laughs> Those guys actually knew <laughs> the hell they were doing in the ring. And uh, that's the only way I can quantify it, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I would think that the, the fans would be as incensed as, as I was over that. And nothing. This is nothing against the kid. Uh, it's you know he he got to live out of a lifetime. Every kid in, on the planet that was watching that wanted to be in that kid's shoes right then. Uh, so nothing against the kid. It's just the idea of taking like I called Dominic Tanucci, who's a five-time WWF Tag Team Champion, and I called him and I said, "Well, did you hear what happened at WrestleMania? You, you have you know you've got a new uh, cousin." You know, you got new family, <laughs> and and when I told him what happened, here was his response: "Oh my God!" And you know that that pretty much sums it up. Uh, you know, it's if we're just writing a sitcom, if we're just writing a a show that's just like Seinfeld, it's about nothing. Then okay, well then let's next week let's have Nicholas go out and beat a broomstick. That'll that'll get over. It's it's about nothing, but. It'll be entertaining, and I'm sure some segment of the audience will think it's cool and hip and different. Uh, for guys like us that that revere the industry the way it used to be, um, not so much, you know. And you know, for me, I, I go back and look at it, and this is to try to spell no special difference between then, now, previous, before, whatever. But when when I was portraying the franchise character in ECW, you know, I was doing interviews on cable television, on uh, news outlets, and far beyond just the, the wrestling media, you know, the, the uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and, and, you know, main event magazines. I was doing interviews with Fox News, uh, you know, major news outlets around the world. And I could go out and give a articulate, intelligent defense of ECW uh, that the fans understood, 
and that it played into everything that those characters that, whether it was me versus Taz, me versus Sandman, me versus Dreamer or Raven, uh, or Mikey Whipwreck, uh, that it played into those. And you don't go back and listen to that and go, oh, he sounds so stupid, or he sounds so silly. It sounded like somebody putting a valid defense of their industry. And I don't know how somebody could do that today without it being a wink-wink and a nod-nod to here's a 10-year-old kid that became a tag team champion at WrestleMania. Uh, And by now the fans have, I'm sure, begun to realize that the kid was the son of the referee of that match. You know, so it just, it, it underscores all that is wrong with, with sports entertainment as opposed to pro wrestling. You know, with, uh, with all due respect, what Bruno San Martino did against George Animal Steel was the exact same thing I did with Sandman, uh, which was the exact same thing that wrestlers around the world have always done. It's all about the presentation. And if the presentation is, let's just make it as silly and corny and whatever spins goes, well, then here's the world champion tonight versus the mop. And we're going to put the mop over because the mop's got a cleanup job to do. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, that's pretty bad. You know, when I think about that uh, pro wrestling exposed, uh, I forget what network did it back in the late 90s during the Attitude Era boom. And they did, you know, like the, the, uh, the granny in the crowd and the, uh, you know, the kid with the autograph book. And they go, and even the kid, you know, was the son of, uh, you know, our backstage worker or this or that. So the fact that he was the son of the referee, like, who really cares? Like, does this mean this kid needs to be a part of the show? Did Vince walk by this guy and be like, you know, I think your son would be a great tag team champion. But I, I, just, right. don't, I, I just don't get the fan dynamic of it. And, and I'm not trying to be you know, uh, snarky in my own regard and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm better because I'm an old school fan. I, I just don't get it. I, why does, why does everything need to be funny? ECW was funny. Look at the BWO. Look at uh, the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards. But look at how they ended up being portrayed at the end of it. They either got their ass whooped and, and got look their at, come up. In, right? You know, look, they're yeah, comfy look. as a place. Look at, I mean, you're talking about funny. Look at Kimono Monolay at Dance Top of the ECW Arena. I mean, that was hilarious. <laughs> and you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, the, the comedy, the comedy's always had a place in wrestling and always will. You know, one of the things I used to go round and round with about Chris Candido was, you know, what he used to always term ha ha. You know, and then I'll do some ha ha, he called it. And he used to infuriate me. But. There, there was a place for it, and the fans responded to it. Look at probably one of the most beloved characters in ECW history, and maybe wrestling history, the Blue Meanie. Uh, you know, it, it's. I'm not sitting there and saying that everything has to be splicing the atom and you know, uber uh, intense, but it's it's got to make some semblance of sense. And you know, if you can't make sense of it, then you probably should go back to the drawing board and rewrite what it is you're thinking about doing. And, you know, it's, I'm not trying to add any import to anything that doesn't belong. If you go back and look at Blue Meanie, you know, and, and, and the BWO, they were there. And in every place where the BWO came up, push comes to shove, when it was with 
them versus any star on the on the show, the BWO was ended up, ended up getting their ass handed to them after they got their humor in. But it wasn't just well, Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards and Nova are three beloved characters of ECW, and so they have to win everything, and they have to win all the belts, and they have to become champions, and they have to be the only thing we can talk about today. Uh, there's a place for everything, and not everything has to be at the top of the of the of the list. It, it's all a question of what you intend to do with your promotion. If your promotion is just to be anything, end all, be all. It can today. It could be black. It could be white, or it could be up and down. It, it's just what we decide to make it. If that's what it is, then I would say it's aimless. You know, I I think about the actual segment where they stripped them of the tag belts. If you haven't seen it, and Kurt Angle is involved in that. And obviously, you know, your history with Kurt Angle. You're both from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We all know the story of Kurt Angle backstage at ECW with the crucifixion and, yeah. and all that stuff. And we we haven't really covered that on the show. We definitely will cover that. But I'm thinking of what he felt about the crucifixion angle. And I'm thinking about that he's participating of stripping a 10-year-old boy of a tag team championship. And I was kind of doing, like, the scales. Like, I wonder which would technically be – worse in the pantheon of Kurt Angle's history because, you know, he's been brought back to television as an authority figure, and he's now got to partake in all this goofy shit that they're writing every week. And, and, it, and I know he's done comedy himself, and he made a name for himself with being a quirky character, but I, I even feel bad for a guy like Kurt Angle uh, just because, you know, it's just it's so stupid. <laughs> just, there's nothing else I can really say. It's just really dumb. Well, if... You know, my takeaway from this is if I hadn't seen a split second of WrestleMania, if I hadn't heard a word of it, if I hadn't heard any reports of it, and you told me this is what we did on Sunday at the pay-per-view at WrestleMania, and then the very next day we had to do this, as as played out as exactly as it has played out, I would say then you should be fired if you wrote that. Because if this is the direction you have to go, let's just do this to get some cheap, chintzy pop on WrestleMania. I mean, that that is like the worst vestiges of our industry. You know, when when you see, uh, you know, somebody gets beat, and then the very next day, you know, they uh, somebody like well, let's, let's, let's use a real world example. Shawn Michaels gets a little bump on his head after running his mouth. He's going to embarrass me on the pay-per-view. And instead of going to the ring and wrestling me, he just comes out and says, I got a little bump on my head. I'm going to hand you the belt. And then Scott Hall comes right out. His buddy comes right out and beats me, quote-unquote quotations, right? And you don't think every fan watching that, you don't think every fan following that and every fan since have looked and saw and realized what was done there, uh, that the WWF just wanted to take the belt and put it from a baby face to a baby face. And, you know, of course, the fans saw it there. At least the smart ones did. And now they're seeing this. And it, 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 to me, it's just a, it, it's a, the cheapest of the cheapest ploys. You know, just, okay, let's go out there and do this. And, you know, my question is, what is Cesaro and, and Sheamus feeling like right now? You know, and you know, maybe they've been there long enough that they just drunk the Kool Aid, and you know, they they just go ahead and do whatever, and they have no 
feel about long term, but you know, as somebody who's at this stage of my career, I can tell you, twenty years from now, somebody's going to be asking you questions about that, and there will be a judgment based off your career will be based and judged based off of what you did there, and not that it was Cesaro or Sheamus's fault because that was what was dictated to them uh, by the quote unquote powers that be in the WWE. I, I just don't know. I mean, like I, I, I keep on saying, that is not the industry that I spent my time in. Uh, you know, so for the fans that keep on talking about the Hall of Fame and stuff, if that's what the Hall of Fame is, if that's what it represents, I want nothing to do with that. Because in my career, I went out and every single night I portrayed the franchise character. I portrayed it as believably as I could. I went out and executed. And it wasn't about winning or losing. That's that's irrelevant. It's a question of, did you send the fans home feeling they got their money's worth and believing in the character that you portrayed to them? And I don't think I could have done that if Paul Hamill would have said to me, well, go out there and have a 10-year-old kid beat you. And it'll be really cool because the fans will be laughing and chuckling and I think it's great. Ah, it's garbage. It's garbage. So stupid. made no sense. It was absolutely terrible. But shifting gears here, I don't know if you saw this, heard about this, but there was apparently a locker room fight that broke out this past weekend in your hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at our Ring of Honor's Heel City Excellence event. Shane, I had a couple of uh, red flags raised up around me saying this is possibly a work. Uh, what did you think or what did you hear about this possible locker room fight backstage at ROH? I, what I'm hearing from my sources is that it was exactly what you and I figured it was. Uh, it was an angle. And, and I figured that as soon as you guys sent it out and, and I saw it on the sheet because, you know, let's face it, if Shane Douglas and Taz get into a fight at the Kissimmee building before the pay-per-view, Everybody, when they're leaving the building that night, is going to know that Shane Douglas and I, or, or Taz and I, had been in a fight that night before the show. Uh, that that's going to circulate around pretty quickly. And in the wrestling business, like I've, you know, I've, I've probably quoted it here before. There's an old saying: "Telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler." And there's no way in the world that several stars got into a fight in the dressing room. And yet, it never leaked out. There was nobody that was, you know, nobody leaking the names because they're going to protect the name from the innocent, um, or protect the innocent, or whatever, whatever the old thing was in the old detective shows back in the seventies. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's. Uh, I don't, I don't know, like where they're trying to go with the storyline. That's my question: is if it's a couple guys got into a fight then you'd want to start leaking that out at some point, you know, even if it was a work, if that's the angle. But so far, I've seen nothing, and I now plead ignorance. I spent the day working on tax receipts and things for the for the good old Internal Revenue Service. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say as to, you know, what exactly they're trying to do with it, but, you know, it's uh, JP. You and I have been on the on the same page, and I believe it's it's an El Worko. 
Yeah, I don't trust it at all. And it's weird that wrestlers backstage are reacting with tweets condemning the actions, but nobody heard or seen anything before it. And then all of a sudden it comes out. It does sound a little bit like, you know, like a work. But, you know, being a veteran like you are, how do you handle like a situation like that if there's a real fight that actually breaks out? Well, you know, if a fight breaks out, if it's between you, you know, if it's a fight with me and somebody, then, you know, first and foremost, you, you, we're professionals and there's a show going on. If it's during the show, then, you know, it's it's pretty unprofessional to allow, you know, and, you know, I've, I plead guilty. I, I've, I've been unprofessional over my career because there's been times I've lost my head and, and others have with me. Uh, you know, this is an ego-driven business, and sometimes those egos can, you know, you know, take you on on a ride someplace you probably wouldn't go otherwise. But first and foremost, there's a show going on. There are thousands of fans sitting out there that have paid their hard-earned dollars. Don't give a shit if you don't get along with wrestler mm. X, Y, or Z. Uh, you know, they're there to be entertained, to forget about their crappy job, their crappy relationship with their husband or wife, or, you know, their, 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 their kids that are driving them crazy at home or whatever, you know, the dog that's pissing on the, on the carpet. Uh, they, they're coming there to forget about that. So it's not your right to intercede on that, to just say, well, screw you. I don't care if you spent 50 or 100 or 200 bucks to bring the family of four. I'm pissed off, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's the first thing. Now, if it's if it's not you, you know, if I'm in the dressing room and I see a couple guys going at it, that would be the you know the message that I'd be telling the two of them. Look, the show's going to be over in an hour, and at that point, once the fans have gone, if you guys want to go to the ring or in the back parking lot and beat the snot out of each other, have at it. But right now, we have an, a, a we have a captive audience here that have spent their hard-earned dollars that they've busted their asses to make that money to come here. That's an honor. And I didn't understand that as a kid, as, uh, certainly not as well as I do now. But, you know, as a father, if I want to take my kids, say, to WrestleMania, <laughs> doesn't that sound crazy? If, but if I wanted to take my kids to WrestleMania, I'm going to spend a shitload of money to take them to, to fly to New Orleans and get a hotel room and take them to WrestleMania do you really think that I want to find out that, you know, that uh, the show's been delayed or there's a problem because Shane Douglas and somebody else or whatever two wrestlers have gotten into a fight in the dressing room? First and foremost, the term is professional wrestling, which means we're professionals at what we do. And if we can't put that behind us, set it aside for the duration of the show and once that show's over and the company is no longer on the line, then have at it. Slobber knock each other if you want. And that, that's the message I would always tell kids. Now, to be honest, I have only seen that a handful of times in my career. Uh, it's been very seldom that it's ever happened. And I think that bespeaks mostly the professionalism of the guys. And when I, I again, I, I like to throw this in just to you know, with all the Me Too stuff going on. Whenever I say the guys, I mean like the boys. And when I say the boys, I mean the men and the women, everybody in the industry. 
uh, you know, it's, I've rarely, rarely seen that over 39 years. And, uh, and again, I think that speaks of the, of the professionalism for, for the boys. Uh, but it has happened. And when it does happen, you know, it's one of those things that sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. And we've all heard the stories ad nauseum of over the years of, you know, where, where it's happened. Um, you know, again, this is an ego-driven business. Everybody in that dressing room, from the first match, the curtain jerk, to the main event, they're big egos. And when you put that many big egos in a dressing room, it's it's quite likely that something, you know, sooner or later something's going to explode. The fact that I've only seen it, you know, a handful of times at best in my entire career, I think speaks that the, the, the guys put the professionalism above their egos. No, I know you were backstage in the old Mid-South UWF days for a big-time, you know, brawl or whatever you want to call it, big-time backstage fight between Dick Slater and Sting. Do you have, uh, you know, deep and uh, dark recollections of that fight that happened? I I, I was there that night. Uh, I, I didn't see it. I, was, I had been in the bathroom and walked out as Dick Slater was walking in and you know, heard what sounded to be a scuffle and Dick Slater walked out. Um, you know, but again, those are the types of things that happen, you know, you know, without going airing any of the dirty laundry, there was, you know, any wrestling fan that's familiar with that story is familiar with the back reason to that story. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of stuff that happens. You know, you, you put 20, 30 guys with, big egos, 20, 30 tough guys with egos and, and a dress room. And, and back in the UWF days, you know, we were driving sometimes 10,000 miles a week uh, up and down the roads to Louisiana and Oklahoma and Texas and, you know, all over God's creation. Um, and, you know, you, and you, it's like putting nitro and glycerin in a bottle and shaking it up to see what happens. Uh, you know, sooner or later something's going to happen. And, but it's, it's rare. And, and I think the coolest thing for me is that when it's happened, I've rarely seen grudges held, you know, like usually when a couple of the boys will get at it, uh, whether it was in the ring or in the dressing room within a couple of days, it was as if nothing happened, you know, we're right back to square one and, you know, because we've, we've got a job to do, you know, and this, the, the job is miserable enough in the sense that you have to travel. Now, let me restate that. It's it's for a young kid like I was in UWF. It was magic every day. You know, I was living out a dream that I could never have imagined was possible. And you know, uh, but when you start getting down to it, and after doing it for three, four hundred times in a row. And having a day off here and a day off there and, you know, getting dragged back out on the road, you know, they used to tell us you get three days off. And if you have three days off, the company had to fly you home. And so you get, you see a three day break and great, I'll get to go home for three days and you'd fly home. And then the very next day they'd call you and tell you they needed you back out on the road the next day. So you see, you got really like a day and a half off, which is about enough time to unload your bag and wash your clothes and repack them. Um, you know, and, and, and at that point, it starts to become work. So when when it becomes work, and once the magic is worn out 
of, you know, living out this dream and you begin to realize that you've got a responsibility, not just to the company, but to the fans that expect to see you, uh, that you don't have time to worry about, I don't get along with this guy or that guy, or, uh, you know, there's an issue or there's somebody fighting or whatever. And the Sting story, as far as uh, Dick Slater, the story goes, Dark Journey was dating Dick Slater, and Sting had slept with Dark Journey. So I guess the you know Dick Slater uh, came up to him and you know beat the shit out of him, I guess. But as the story goes, Sting let it happen because he knew he was in the wrong. So interesting uh, story. Who knows? I guess what's what's true and what's not true. But you were actually there. So interesting little factoid. Who who knows what? Darkness lurks in the heart of men, hearts of men, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then some infamous backstage fights. You have HBK versus Bret Hart, Vader against Paul Orndorff. Well, or whoa, 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 wait, 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 hold on, time. We had to back up here for a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, 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 there's proof of an altercation with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart on a backstage area. Oh yeah, big time. Oh yeah. Oh yes, or or the storyline. No, 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 for real. Big PJ too can even vouch for that. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall for that one. John, give the backstory. Yeah. You definitely, uh, you know, this one PJ told you about. Well, <laughs> well, as the well as the story goes, you know, they they were getting into it on TV, and I guess they kind of worked themselves into a shoot, so to speak, and they were brawling backstage, and uh, Sean was trying to get away, so Brett literally grabbed onto his hair, and then, and Sean was literally, you know, trying to run away or whatever, and Brett wouldn't let go of his hair, so Jerry Lawler had to step in, and a bunch of other people had to step in. Jerry Lawler, who may or may not have just came off the shitter, came over <laughs> to break it up, and uh, Brett ended up getting a huge chunk of uh, Michael's hair, and Michael's went to Vince, and Supposedly, uh, I wouldn't say cried, but he he was not happy, and he told Vince oh. uh, accordingly that he was not happy. Okay, well, see, see, it's like I always tell my kids, words matter, because, like, when you say backstage altercation to me in my head, that means, like, two guys are going at it and, like, like you know, not, like, going, you know, fist a cup and a back and forth, and I just, in my in the back of my head, cannot see Shawn Michaels fighting with Bret Hart. And uh, so that's why, okay, so I, I misunderstood. So the altercation you meant, like, like you just described, that to me sounds so much more believable than, than Shawn stood his ground with Bret Hart and was, was fighting back because I just, I just, I don't think Shawn would stand his ground with Nicholas let alone stand his ground with Bret Hart. <laughs> well, no, if they got in a real fight, Bret Hart would legit, like, you'd probably kill him in about five seconds if, if they ever yeah. got in a real fight. <laughs> and he ripped he ripped out his hair. He ripped out a chunk of his hair, too. <laughs> so that's why he's bald these days. It could I don't be. Know if you guys have noticed, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the franchise still has a full quaff. It's uh, still nice and full up there. But you've always <laughs> you must said, have though, good that genes. Yeah, but you said you regretted cutting your hair, right? That, that, that was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago now, but you cut off those long locks franchise. Well, I, I cut them off, but I still, I, still got, I still got a hairline. Let's put it that way. It's, it's and it true. Ain't, it, it, ain't, it ain't like 10 rabbits jumping backwards. 
it's, uh, <laughs> I I throw the full cloth. I, in fact, I'm going to grow it out just to prove to you guys. Just to, just to, like, I always tell Moose. Moose always laughs because like the person with the part of the the most beautiful head of hair in the history of wrestling has got to be Greg the Hammer Valentine, right? He's he's got this beautiful cloth of hair, and it's like a it's like a shampoo commercial, like the wind blowing and you know the, the hair waffling in the in the in the in the wind. That's Greg Valentine, right? I the franchise can do the same. I still got the full cloth. I was going to mention Vader and Orndorff, and I almost want to skip to it because I thought that you were possibly backstage for that one. Were you there still in WCW when Orndorff apparently, supposedly, uh, beat up Vader in the shower? I was not, but I, 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 as I recall, we heard about it. I forget where I was at the time. Uh, it's not there, but I recall hearing about it like immediately. Like it, it rippled through the business very quickly. Um, you know, because Paul was a well-known badass, and you know Vader was believed to have been a badass. And you know there was, you know, Vader was anybody you know you ever stood around Leon, he's a big sob. I mean, he's a big guy. And uh, you know, so wherever I was at that time, I remember like hearing immediately about it. Like it was within hours of it happening, uh, hearing about it. So it was a Definitely a big to-do. There's also the infamous Rougeau versus Dynamite uh, backstage brawl where supposedly, you know, uh, Dynamite might have been humbled a little bit, but he did get uh, a sucker punch with a uh, fistful of quarters. Yeah, look, the Rougeaus, uh, you know, they're both good guys, uh, damn good guys, but also very capable guys. And, you know, it's... uh, it's it's no secret in the business, you know. The, the Dynamite was one of those guys that, you know, that uh, ribbed incessantly. You know, there's good ribs and there's bad ribs. Like the good ribs are the ones where somebody, you know, hides your shoes or, you know, stupid little things like that that, you know, get somebody chuckling. And uh, the, the bad ones where somebody shits in your bag, you know, cuts your suit pants off that kind. Of, you know, the, the really stiff ribs uh, that, you know, and the dynamite was gone uh, by the time I had gotten up there full time. And, you know, but I'd heard these stories. These stories had circulated like renowned in the dressing room. And, uh, you know, that it, it, it got to a point where he'd taken it a step too far. And, you know, the Rizzo's stuck up for themselves. And what I understand, you know, you know sort of dotted the I. And, you know, but then, like you said, then the story, the, the follow-up to it. And, you know, to me, it's like one of those things, like if you want to rib and then you get called on and you get your ass kicked, um, just be man enough to, to walk away, shake hands, say you're sorry, bygones with bygones, that kind of thing. But then to, like, take it another step further and, and do something like that, uh, you know, it's – I don't want to say it sounds I, I I didn't know uh, uh, dynamite, so I don't want to speak like I like I did. But you know, to me, it's you know, like Kevin Sullivan used to say, it's karma, brother. What goes around comes around, and you know, we've all heard and read the book and heard the stories, and it saddens me that after that renowned career, 
that that would be the epitaph to that career. And, you know, sort of sad. And I think you may have been backstage for this one, but I'm not 100% sure. Two Colt Scorpio versus Hawk. Obviously, Hawk is a huge, huge guy. But Scorpio, an underrated tough guy from what I, you know, what I gather and what I hear from some of the boys. Scorpio could throw down. And, you know, he, he wouldn't back up from anybody. Um, you know, and I, I think in the Hawks' case and at, at that time was, uh, I don't want to say living on the fumes, but, you know, it started to believe, you know, the the the, uh, the storyline, so to speak. Not that Hawk wasn't a tough guy. Mike was a, was a damn tough guy. But Scorpio was no slouch. And that he didn't back down and held his own, uh, I, I think, is what made that story become what it became. Uh, you know, and so oftentimes in our business, a lot of times a guy with the history that like, like, like Mike Hegstrand had, you know, the bark precedes the bite, you know. And so a lot of guys will, will back down or won't venture there because of that. Uh, Scorpio wasn't that kind of kid. You know, and, 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 and did stick up for himself and, you know, let it be known. You know, I, I think, you know, created a, an aura for himself in the process. There's a lot of great ones, I mean, you know, that we know of. And obviously, as fans, you know, we kind of like to hear these things because, you know, it, it brings the intensity into their characters or into the stories. And, and it's unfortunate for the guys and you got to deal with it. But, you know, it happens in every environment. I mean, I know, in, uh, you know, where I work, there's uh, there's been some altercations that have happened in uh, dressing rooms and stuff. And, you know, it happens. But one thing I find very interesting is with ECW, you'd never hear that many instances of big time blow up fights. Now, I'm sure some happen that we don't know of, but you hear of, you know, RVD telling Taz to pick a hand and slapping Taz. You know, you hear of little things like that, but... Does that speak to the camaraderie of ECW that you guys didn't have really big blow-ups, or if you did, they didn't get out to the sheets the way some of these other ones did? I, I think so. Uh, you know, like I was saying at WrestleCon last weekend, is you know being back with Mikey and Francine and, and Jerry and CW being there, uh, you know, it just it reminds you of the family and and the special quality that was ECW. Um, you know, there there were altercations that happened. Uh, you know, they, they but they they happened and then they were done. And you know, much like when I was a kid, you know, if you if you fought somebody, ten minutes later you were you were buddies again, and you know you respected each other and moved on. And that was pretty much what I saw on ECW. Um, and I think that like you you know you said it was because of the family quality that was you know even at that time probably. Nobody in the dressing would have called it a family, but in hindsight, I think everybody looking back at it would call it exactly that. It was a family, and, uh, you know, it's like sometimes you fight your fight with your brother, uh, but if somebody jumps your brother, you're going to be out there defending them. And, you know, we've all heard the renowned stories of, you know, the ECW locker room emptying out and, you know, beating up an audience because, you know, somebody – you know, called somebody the wrong name or somebody jumped somebody or somebody did something that, you know, a fan did something they shouldn't have done. Uh, at that point, whatever differences you have with that particular talent was out the window, you were protecting the family. 
Yeah, that's so cool. And those are some of the stories that ha- we've heard about is like, you know, somebody out in the uh, the, the parking lot and there's uh, some fans jaw jacking and then here comes New Jack, you know, and then here yeah. comes, you know, the Sandman <laughs> and here comes Sabu. And it's like, I would love to have just been like a spectator just to see that because I could picture, you know, the New Jack music hitting and then the garbage can <laughs> flying from out of nowhere, you know, <laughs> and, and the, the brouhaha uh, starting, but you know, look, fights are fights, and, and they happen, but there's one other fight here that we didn't mention, and I don't know if it was really a fight. It might have been more one-sided, but I know you weren't there for this, but um, the Nails-Vince McMahon altercation from around 1992, uh, yeah. which Bret Hart has talked about, I believe both in his book and in a couple of shoot interviews, that uh, Nails was uh, not happy, and he was in there with Vince McMahon, and uh, basically, uh, long story short, Vince McMahon was, uh, caught by the throat by Nails, who was a big, uh, big SOB. Uh, but yeah, there's oh, yeah. yet another one. I'm sure the laundry list of guys that wanted to do that to Vince, uh, really, it might, might outweigh Nails, uh, in terms of how many people would want to do the same thing. Well, and the fact that it happened that one time, uh, you'll never see it happen again because Vince, after that, uh, including the time that I was there would never go into a room alone with a wrestler. Anytime he walked into a room, uh, into a meeting with Vince, there was always a group of people around. Uh, you know, you, you've heard me tell a story about uh, my last night wrestling in, in Madison Square Garden. And when I walked into the room after I heard Vince yelling, get Dean Douglas in my office right this minute. And I'd had it. I thought, you know what, you son of a bitch, there was one man on the planet that could talk to me like that. His name was George Martin. He's been dead since 1993. And I pulled myself up off that bench intending to go to knock his teeth down his throat. And when I walked into the room, Chief Jay Strombo was there, Rene Goulet was there, Black Jack Lonza was there, Pat Patterson was there, Jim Ross was there. You know, the whole room was filled up with people. And that all beckons back to, and, and like right now, if you can see him, I'm on my hands and knees, like doing the bow down respect. To uh, uh, to Kevin Kelly uh, nails for uh, having <laughs> beat the shit out of Vince, and even better after he did it, I mean he beat him up so badly he broke his wrist. Uh, you know, nails is a pretty tough old guy, and when he walked out of the room, you know he he obviously was smart enough to know to cover his tracks. He saw a cop down the hallway and said that some of the bitches tried to grab my penis. <laughs> and that's why that's why nothing ever legal came of it. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, nails is is exalted in a lot of circles in the wrestling business. <laughs> funny funny thing with nails, if everybody remembers how the nails character was portrayed on TV, they would use a voice uh, changer to make his voice uh, be very menacing, very deep, and very gruffy. And if you ever hear Kevin Kelly's real voice. It's it's very t- I mean he's still a tough dude you know he sounds like he'll beat your ass but just in comparison to what the WWF did and to distort his voice it's just it's funny and there's a clip on YouTube where they remove his uh, voice distortion and he's just like a regular sounding guy you know with a, I believe he's got a New England accent and it's just it's it's funny the difference that uh, that television magic can really play uh, with somebody I gotta send you that Shane it's actually very funny when they do the comparison of the distortion yeah, versus love- the no distortion. I'd love to see it, but, you know, the the, the best all-time, you know, for, for me anyway, uh, the, the voices that you don't expect to be like they are, 
is uh, big boss man Ray Trainer. Um, you know, he's he, you know, this big, gruff guy, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, you know, 300-plus pounds, you know, big raw bone guy. You know, you hear him talking, he, he talks sort of like, hey, Shane, how you doing, buddy? How you doing? <laughs> he had his real <laughs> high-pitched voice, you know, just really, you know, just, uh, you know, Ray's another one of those guys that, uh, you know, that I really miss. Uh, you know, he, a little known, a little side trivia fact here, Ray Trainer was uh, part of my wedding party. Uh, he was uh, oh, wow. part of part of the franchise wedding party, and you know Ray and I had been, were very close friends, uh, which is you know why he was on the wedding party. Um, you know when I heard that he had passed away uh, from OxyContin, I was floored uh, because you know I'm sure as much as you know as if he had heard that I had an addiction with OxyContin, he would have been shocked. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody saw um, uh, one of the Mellon uh, heirs, uh, same age as me, 53 uh, years old, died today uh, or yesterday uh, from OxyContin. He was at a rehab facility in Cancun and passed away. So, you know, it's a, 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 wicked, a wicked drug that, that Pardue Pharmaceuticals had unleashed on the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's taken more than a share of people in this industry and, you know, continues to. So, uh, you know, just really, a, you know, satellite. You know, I don't know why I digress with that. I just, I just read it today, and, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about the fun things about the wrestling business and we go to this dark turn. But, you know, uh, Ray, Ray is a guy that I that sorely missed in the industry. I uh, was a great guy and, uh, you know, just, you know, one of those guys that, like I said, uh, had that voice that when you when you heard him talk, you know, you took a thousand wrestling fans and put them behind a curtain and said, you know, who is this? And hear them talk, and they would never guess Big Boss Man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He's such like he. I mean, he could say he could have a, a high pitched, uh, glass breaking voice. You know, when he hit he hit the ring with that fire, he could throw that right hook. You know, he was, oh, uh, he was the Big Boss Man. You know, he was really the he was the man. He could go. He he was a hell of an athlete. You know, it's uh. You know, you sort of get lost in that whole, you know, the big boss man character and the way the WWE or WWF then portrayed their characters. But uh, Ray Trader was a hell of an athlete and could move around for a guy that size. I was always impressed, you know, in the industry that I came into. You know, I always called it the land of the giants. You know, at you know six one, two hundred and fifty three pounds, I was a, I was a midget. You know, I was a, a munchkin in the industry. And, you know, I'm in an industry of guys, six, 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 five, six, seven, seven foot tall, 300, 400, 500 pounds. And these guys are moving around like cats. You know, I, rem- I remember when uh, uh, Yokozuna, back in the day when we first were breaking in, back in the Continental Wrestling Federation, he was still Kokina. And I'm guessing about 360, 380 at the time, and was moving around like, Ray Mysterio Jr. It was astounding, you know, to see the athleticism of these guys. Um, you know, but that was the industry that I came into. It was super freaky, you know, to see guys this size, this big, this strong, this lim- nimble and, and, and agile. It was crazy. It was, you know, just a, you know, like superhuman almost. 
You know, if, it wouldn't surprise me if half of them ripped the shirt off and they had an S on their chest underneath because they, you know, there really were some freaky athletic guys in the industry that were monsters. It was crazy. You know, I got to say, though, I feel like the boss man kind of benefited from that character because when they were really building up that that early 90s core uh, of those cartoony, you know, everybody's got to have some kind of profession character. I don't know why I think the big boss man fit Ray Trailer like a glove. But, you know, here's one question I got for you since you knew him so well. He really transitioned his body like unbelievably over the span of about a year where he went from being like a super duper duper heavyweight with a you know big, yeah. big gut and you know to becoming so lean and you could see that athleticism in the and the 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 slim like physique that he ended up having now do you know how he managed to do that i mean cuz it it seems like in one vein you see him and he's got the you know the chubbier face the big gut and then uh, you know 6 months later he's lean he's cut and he's flying down the ramp. I mean, he would legitimately sprint to the ring. Yeah. It's, you know, when you get, at that, especially at that time, and I'm sure it's still the same mindset and culture today. Uh, when you got to the WWF back then, there was this just sort of general wisdom that you tapped into about diet and supplements and, you know, working out and all the things you had to do because, you know, when you're on the road, what the, the average fan out there may not understand is, you know, they, you know, live in a 24-hour day. So they wake up in the morning, they go to the gym, they shower, they go to their job or they go to their job, get a shower and come home, eat dinner, go to bed, whatever. Back then, you know, as I'm sure much the same today to a lesser degree, I don't think they do the same amount of travel, but – uh, you know, you, you were flying around the country, sometimes around the world, and having to get off that plane, jump into a rental car, zip to the hotel, you know, to throw your bags down and, you know, brush your teeth and, you know, get ready and zip over to the arena, and you still had to find time to work out. And as I recall, uh, both in my 1990 stint and later in my 96 stint, in the WWF was that there was this uh, culture that sort of sprung up. You know, like, if you're going to go to the gym, you got to go at this point uh, of the day, because if you wait longer, you won't have time uh, eating. If you're going to eat something, you got to grab your food now and take it with you to the building. Uh, you know, I, it was completely normal and commonplace to see guys on planes you know, you've all seen, we've all seen the packets of protein, right? You know, you got a, like an envelope of protein powder and where they call the protein pudding, you'd tear that open and pour a little bit of water into it just to make a, like a paste and you'd eat it like a pudding. Um, you know, it was just like your whole life revolved around your diet, uh, your workout, um, you know, where you could squeeze it in during the day and it just became part of your daily culture. Like you get up, you shit shower and you shave. Uh, when you were in the Federation or on the, any of the majors, WCW, ECW, NWA, UWF, uh, you know, you had to do it in a certain way if you were going to hope to excel up that ladder. And, you know, I can, 
in my mind's eye, I can still see guys like Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero, you know, tearing their protein packets open on the plane and pouring a little bit of water and stirring it up with a plastic spoon and eating, a, you know, the protein pudding. Uh, just what you had to do, you know. And likewise, we, you know, we used to always meet up, uh, me, Perry, Saturn, Dean Malenko, and uh, uh, Chris Benoit used to meet up and we always stayed at Marriott's. And we'd wake up in the morning, we'd meet, uh, 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, eat our breakfast and head off to the gym because you had to, you know, in, in sh- very short order, either be on a plane or be in a car driving to the next destination. And that was that was your daily life. It was, you know, like I said, getting up and shit, showering and shaving. For the average person, uh, for the average wrestler, it was doing those types of things and uh, just carrying through day to day. What a grueling life, man. You guys, uh, I give you all the credit in the world, and it adds to your mystique because you guys are like superhumans. <laughs> I, I had trouble driving a few hours. I mean, you're talking, you're 20 hours in the air and driving and this and that. I mean, to maintain that kind of lifestyle, I, I give you all the credit in the world, and you guys are like, uh, yeah, you're like modern-day marvels that you could survive and make your next shot and do it all. I, uh, I got to tip my cap to you. But uh, as we kind of enter the main event stage, uh, of the show here. Uh, we got to look back. It was 21 years since Barely Legal 97, which is ECW's first pay-per-view, taking place April 13th, yes. 1997, from the ECW Arena in Philadelphia. Now, normally we would kind of cover this in a full episode, but we've touched on Barely Legal a lot, if you kind of piece it together, a lot of stuff we talked about, even including talking about your match uh, fairly recently. So I, I kind of want to hit a couple of high points here looking back, you know, 21 years ago, and that's the, that's the starting point. <laughs> you know, 21 right. years uh, uh, since Barely Legal. I mean, you've seen so much happen in your career, so much happen in your life, obviously the, the, the closure of ECW and the, the myth it's building, but I'm looking ahead on the calendar, and even in November where WrestleCade is doing an extreme uh, reunion-style thing, so yet another influx of ECW nostalgia, but to look back 21 years, since barely legal, with that buildup that it took for you guys to get on pay per view, you know, Shane, kind of reflect on that uh, that journey to get to barely legal '97 because it was quite the ride for you guys at one point. Well, it, it was, and I remember distinctly at, at the time leading up to that, uh, you know, to that barely legal moment was, you know, there had been offers made to ECW, and and this is where I really take my hat off to Paul Heyman. Um, you know, in wrestling, especially then, and even still now, but especially then, pay-per-view was the nirvana. That was, you had arrived if you're on pay-per-view. And, you know, as, as much, you know, blood, sweat, and tears had been put into ECW at that time, uh, we, you know, we had had offers to be on pay-per-view prior to Barely Legal. Um, Showtime was one in, in particular that had offered us a deal to come on, and but they wanted, and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get the number wrong, but it was something like an eight or a twelve camera shoot, and they wanted a pyro uh, show and laser beams and, and all this craziness that wasn't ECW, and Paul was prescient enough to turn them down. Now think about that, you know, you've got this baby of a company you've been working to build, and you know for how many years at that point. And you've got this major entity called Showtime offering you 
an outlet, you know, to, to pay-per-view. And you tell them thanks, but no thanks. Uh, you know, I remember at the time thinking to myself, has he lost his mind? You know, because, uh, you know, this is, this, like, you know, in wrestling then, even now, was the measuring stick pay-per-view uh, of success. But in short order, you know, we were able to get it up on the air and, you know, and have this pay-per-view, and uh, which really was a seminal moment for ECW, of, of many seminal moments for ECW. You know, the belt throw down and, you know, the, you know, all these different things that happened in ECW. But then suddenly we're on pay-per-view. We're now dancing with WCW and, and WWF. And that just put us on a whole different level. And, you know, even though at the time, those of us that were in the dressing room, you know, we were still going to the same dressing room every three weeks and, you know, seeing the same guys and the same audience. Uh, you know, we, it was hard for us to see the forest of the trees. But in hindsight, now looking back and knowing the industry, like I know the industry, you know, that really was a huge, huge moment for ECW. And not to just have done it, not to just have gotten there but to have gotten there and delivered the goods. You know, it was, you know, if you remember back at the time, you know, Vince used to call us the bingo hall company, uh, the small pond, uh, the minor leagues. And yet here was the small pond, the bingo hall company, the minor leagues, delivering a pretty damn god, goddamn good show and doing it without all the bells, buzzers, and whistles that he had to rely on to deliver his show. Uh, we were doing it in the ring. Uh, the way his dad had done it uh, in the industry. And so it really, I think, spoke that there was a dichotomy in the industry at that time. You know, you have the sports entertainment guys over here, and you have the professional wrestling guys over here. And it really was a huge moment, uh, something that I'm eternally proud of. And, I, you know, I said it back then when I was doing the interviews with the mouthpiece for the company, and I stand by it today. It was a huge, huge moment for ECW, and truly was a nirvana for ECW and, you know, just thrilled to have been part of it. And obviously, you know, in the typical vein of ECW, Paul Heyman had everybody kind of keyed in as to what was going on. And he was telling fans, you know, kind of what to do in terms of who to write to and make your voice heard, bring ECW to pay-per-view. Right. You guys had a deal set up that ended up falling through you know, obviously, we had just talked about the mass transit interview uh, incident a few months back. So there was a lot of X factors that were kind of preventing you guys from even making it to pay-per-view. So, so one of the things that I kind of was wondering was, did Paul trust the pay-per-view providers to even go through with the event after all that drama that ensued leading up to the actual announcement of the pay-per-view? I, I never heard him speak otherwise. Uh, you know, I'm sure there were part of some reticence on his part because of of those things, you know, there was a point where if you go back and look at the very earliest franchise promos, 93, 94, early 95, I was saying things like, uh, you know, uh, Webster's calls it a, calls wrestling a sport. The marquee outside says wrestling. It means we're a shoot. We're a goddamn shoot. Um, and Paul came to me, had never, ever, told me not to say something prior to that. And he came to me and he said, drop that line. Stop calling it a shoot. And when I asked him why, now again, this is the time that the UFC is in its very early infancy. 
and they were having a lot of trouble getting licensed in states. Uh, and the reason being that we were being likened to a human cockfight. And the powers that be that were running the TV networks and the pay-per-view outlets believed that we were just, you know, a bunch of guys going out there and kicking the shit out of each other. And, you know, that, you know, hitting each other with chairs and throwing each other through tables and beating, you know, clobbering each other with barbed wire. Um, and we had to temper that. We had to sort of tame that down, tone it down a bit so that the pay-per-view companies weren't so afraid to go forward with us as a pay-per-view entity. The, the, the last thing they wanted at the same time, UFC was getting the same thing. And that was the reason that they had adopted the rules with, you know, the gloves and the referee could stop the match and, you know, all the different rules they put into place because they weren't able to get licensed in most States either. So, you know, that was the, the first inkling that I had, that something was changing because prior to that, you know, my, my promos were pretty standard and pretty straightforward and uh, it changed right, right prior to the better legal pay-per-view. One of the things that's kind of funny is, you know, obviously the, the, the name barely legal, obviously 97, barely legal. (laughs) You're just starting to get into the internet folks. So, uh, we we kind of th- we kind of knew what barely legal meant, you know, if you were uh, searching the old uh, interwebs back then. And uh, I, yeah. I got a uh, <laughs> I, without saying it, you know, you had to be 18 to get on those sites at the time. So uh, <laughs> right. So barely legal, you know, it was a departure from just doing, you know, the hostile city showdown or the night the line was crossed or November to remember. This was now creating. ECW's own branded show and and taking it out of just the monthly show for the people in attendance at ECW Arena or taping it for television, you know, to have a specific now pay-per-view for ECW called Barely Legal. Did you like that that name? Did you kind of feel that that was, you know, matching that vibe of ECW? Absolutely. It felt right for ECW, you know, that, that, that here was a company that was sort of the underground that was the, the counterculture. And, you know, here's a name, you know, that sort of implied, you know, we barely cut her nose in above there. You know, we, we had to conform in certain ways, but it was the thing, you know, like, like I just said about my promos. And there were a lot of instances like that for ECW where we toned it down just enough to make the pay-per-view companies feel comfortable. I don't know how comfortable they were, but at least feel safe in, in moving forward with the pay-per-view. But that in and of itself was part of the storyline that was ECW. Like, the, you know, the pay-per-view companies, you know, aren't quite sure and they're, they're hesitant and they're nervous. You know, that fed into ECW's fan base. You know, they, they were all familiar. They knew what they were getting. But the fact that now they're hearing that the pay-per-view companies were hesitant and that they were nervous, uh, you know, and, and the barely legal name just sort of played into that. You know, it just sort of underscored all that they already knew. And it's sort of that hidden secret. You know, you you got that secret swim spot that you take you and your girl to, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old and nobody else knows about. And then the rest of the world starts to find out about it. And you're like, well, shit, I, you know, me and my chick knew about that for, for two years. You know, it's it's that forbidden zone that not many people get to get a chance to see the hidden secret. And suddenly ECW, that was the hidden secret, that forbidden zone, 
that was now being offered on a much bigger platform than it had ever been offered before. You know, and I got to tell you, something just popped in my head, and it's not on our, our run sheet here, so I'm not trying to shoot or, or throw a curveball in, but this just popped into my head. You know, with that lead-up to Barely Legal, the the ECW-WWF you know, relationship that Vince had with Paul Heyman at the time came into a major play because Paul was able to work his way on the Monday Night Raw and have the, you know, quote, first-ever ECW invasion. But I look at that on paper. I see Sabu, I see Taz, I see Raven, I see the Sandman, I see the Dudley Boys, I see Mikey Whipwreck, I see the BWO and Nunzio, I see all these ECW mainstays, but the franchise was not in attendance. Now, with that, now, did, were you in support of that at all, or were you just balking at it and be like, no, I want nothing to do with that relationship? No, I balked at it. Um, I was in the studio when Paul spoke to Vince. Uh, you know, and Paul the whole time was like holding his fingers up to his lips, like, shh, don't say it, don't, because I was on, he was on speakerphone. And when he first pitched the idea, and I had been telling Paul for some time before this, this was after the fact that I had heard Vince's voice when he called the studio that day, and I talked about before in a previous episode. Right, right, uh, right. And I told him, I said, at some point, maybe not now, but as soon as that son of a bitch has to stab you in the back, he will. And he sure as hell did. Um, but Paul was on the phone with Vince, and they were talking this whole thing through. And I already told Paul, there is no chance in hell of me going there. Done. Not happening. You can fire me if you want, but I'm not going. And uh, Vince said to Paul on the phone, now he thinks he's talking to Paul, doesn't realize that I'm sitting there listening, and so was Joey Styles, and I think Francine was there. Uh, and Vince said to Paul, you know, what about, what about the franchise? And Paul said, I don't think you want the franchise there. I'm, I, I'd rather him not be there. And Vince insisted. He said, no, he's, you know, your top star, you have to have him there. And Paul like stood up to him and said, I trust me, Vince, you really don't want Shane to be there. And, <laughs> and, and, and Vince said to Paul, and this will show you a mindset in the way he thinks of his talent. He said, well, you, you, don't, you don't think you can just tell him to be there? And I forget the exact wording, but it was like along those lines, like, you just tell him he's going to be there. And Paul said back to him, I don't, you know, I, I don't talk to my talent that way. And, and that was how it got dropped. And, you know, Paul left it with saying, trust me, I tell you, you'd rather not have the franchise there. And Vince, and I'm sure you don't listen to this podcast, but I'm sure he has students that does. Trust me when I tell you, Vince, it was in your best interest in not having me there that night. I, I, it just, I had no part of wanting to be part of that. You know, it was, I'd already been there. I knew what a goddamn quagmire it was and, you know, how aimless it was. Um, you know, when you, when I look back and you see, like, how Steve Austin went in there, you know, with the ringmaster gimmick and, you know, and just went nowhere. And suddenly he's given the opportunity to show his wares what, what, what Steve Austin brings to the table, what tools Steve Austin brings. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is wrestling history, right? Uh, <laughs> it just is what it is. And sometimes... 
you know, sometimes some guys may need you to direct for them. Somebody like a Steve Austin or a Shane Douglas or a Mick Foley or a Mark Callis or a Bret Hart, I mean, go on down the list, are not people that need to direct them. You know, just, just give them the outlet and, and point them in a direction. Um, you know, so when they did the, the, the invasion angle, I sat and watched it from my house. And I was happy for, 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 for my ECW brothers to be on there and doing that because at the time it was really cool and sort of cutting edge. Um, but in the back of my head, I knew that at some point there was going to be a price to pay for this. And, you know, I'm thankful to this day that I was not part of that invasion angle. Yeah, you were a glaring omission, obviously, because you're the, the the top heel, and you see everybody else on the show, I mean, including Raven wearing the ECW title on television, and you just got to see, it was weird, you got to see ECW in, like, the real colors, you know what I mean? We always saw it so gray, yeah. you know, and kind of like, all. it was cool to see ECW so colorful and Taz's orange jumping off the screen, and Sabu, <laughs> you know, kind of tough tumbling off the uh, the R and the Raw sign. But, yeah, I could see how, you know, not that far removed from when you departed. So I could see that being about as fresh a wound as uh, as humanly possible. But do you feel that actually helped the exposure of the pay-per-view for them to give Paul at least, you know, I want to say it was about three segments where he got to promote the show. And, and yet now you had Vince putting over ECW at that point where he, I don't know how much he knew really about the product, but still in 97, that exposure on television is going to sell you at least a couple pay-per-views. No, no question about it. I mean, it, it, you know, synergy is the name of the game when you're doing something like that. And, you know, to expose us to all the EC, to all the WWF fans, uh, many of whom probably were familiar with us, but I'm sure a bunch weren't. And so, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that it helped strengthen the, the buy rate for ECW. Uh, you know, it's, I would have rather the long-term see that relationship. Like I, I've often said, you know, if, if you have a successful business and JP has a successful business and I buy those two businesses, uh, is it necessary for me to change the name of Chad's business and, and JP's business to the franchise's business? just to assuage my ego, or if they're both doing great business, just keep running the way they are. If the money's coming to my bank account, you could call it Tim Buck fucking two business, <laughs> uh, as long as the money's coming in my checking account. Um, but that, you know, I, I think you see in, in Vince's ego popping out even then that, you know, there was, uh, you know, all these little, like in each of those segments, there was always some sort of backhanded comment from Vince, which worked perfectly for his character at the time. But for those of us that were inside the industry and inside those companies, you know, those were what we call ribbing on the square. Uh, I mean, in other words, being a shoot. And, uh, you know, the, the shame of it is, is that Vince could have, I mean, look at how much money, you know, for anybody that's, that's a public uh, investor in the WWE, Ask yourself how much of the resources of the company have gone into building and maintaining and staffing and ensuring the performance center in Florida when he could have very simply just kept Paul Heyman in charge of ECW 
and allowed Paul, who, as you can see on Twitter today uh, and yesterday, uh, a fan that tried to challenge him at this point that, you know, ECW never created any talent, uh, you know, allowed Paul to do what Paul was best at, creating characters, developing characters, and getting those characters over. Uh, my guess is it would have been exponentially cheaper than all that's been dumped into the Performance Center in Florida. And instead, Vince had to see it as he had to vanquish that thing that was called ECW. Why? Because the fans in his building were chanting ECW as much as they were anywhere else, and it drove him nuts, which is the whole genesis of his quote-unquote new ECW or ECW Redux or 2 or whatever he called it. Uh, he wanted to try to stop those fans from chanting ECW because it drove him nuts. So for you fans when you go to an e to a WWE show, you want to get under Vince's skin and really drive him crazy, chant your lungs out, ECW, 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 because it'll <laughs> drive him fucking nuts. <laughs> but Vince might think our uh, maybe the fans want our buddy Kevin Thorne to come back with uh, the revamped ECW. <laughs> maybe he he might get confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's funny. So that, that show itself, that Raw show where ECW is on, we just were talking to Eric Bischoff uh, last week for a show that we're yeah. going to put out in a few weeks. That was the first time he ever acknowledged on air the NWO, and he referred to the NWO as the clothing line NWO. <laughs> so you got ECW invading his uh, Manhattan Center show, and then you got him referencing – the clothing line NWO. So uh, really, the, the I, I guess a prelude to things to come. Two properties he'd end up owning. You know, he brought up on a show. Uh, you know, about five six years before he would do both of that. Yeah, and you know how how close he came to not right. I mean, you know that that to, that to me is like in looking back in the history of the WWE and the WWF and the industry as a whole was that how many times Vince McMahon came so close to losing it all. Uh, you know, when he when he bought the, the slot on Superstation and almost lost his ass then, and then years later had taken the industry to such a crazy place that it opened the door for the creation of a company like ECW. And then from there to WCW, uh, you know, kicking his ass for what was it 83 93 weeks whatever it was uh before he finally got his second wind and 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 figured out where he was going to go with this thing and push pushing forward and make no mistake about it vince had learned in every one of those battles you know if any fight you're in you, you know you you learn from those fights and the battles that you're in and vince learned from ecw what he had learned from ecw and truth be known, as much as, and I'm not saying anybody's not familiar with here, you know, I, I adored ECW, but we weren't a pimple on Vince's ass on a corporate level. You know, we were an incredible company. We had incredible, craziest fans on in professional wrestling. But uh, when you look at ECW, little this little Philadelphia-based company, compared to the WWF, WWE, whatever you want to call it, you know, one was a juggernaut and one was a company, you know, a, a local company. But the, the quality of those shows 
is what carried us. It wasn't a question that we could compete on a match-for-match, show-for-show, day-for-day, pay-per-view-to-pay-per-view basis with WWF. But, you know, we we laid it down in the old-fashioned way. But, you know, history moves forward, not backwards. Uh, He also learned a huge amount in his battles, his prodigious battles, with WCW. And that's what I've often said, that had Time Warner uh, had the cojones to stay in the fight and really go at it. I think they could have given Vince a lot more better run for the money than, than they did. They just sort of high-tailed it and put a tail between their legs and handed the company to him for a song and a dance. Uh, but in each one of those things, Vince learned moving forward what he had to do to continue to be successful. Unlike WCW, uh, that was the redheaded stepchild of the industry. Uh, I dare say that he didn't have half the amount of verve or 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 uh, what sort of looking for love that Paul Heyman had for ECW. The difference being that Paul Heyman was heading up a company that was a for all intents and purposes, a local company as compared to a juggernaut, which a corporate juggernaut like was WWF at the time. And with that being said about the show and the promotion on Raw, the buy rate was a .26, which is the equivalent of approximately 104,000 buys. So was that high or low versus what you guys were expecting based off of uh, 1997 pay-per-view buys? To be honest with you, I don't remember any talk pre-pay-per-view as to what expectation was. Um, I'm sure Paul probably had a number picked out in his head. Uh, there was no discussion of that that I'm aware of. And I'm guessing if I wasn't aware of it, that nobody was. Uh, not, not because I didn't know it all or anything, but that was the kind of thing that would have circulated around his wrestling room. Uh, to us, it was the ECW arena. And we were... You know, we knew we had mastered that and we knew how to manipulate that and work it to our advantage so the fans would get their entertainment. And that was my mindset going into that show was to try to keep everybody that hadn't been on pay-per-views before, which was a considerable portion of the dressing room, was to try to keep them focused. Forget the cameras, forget the lights, forget forget the production truck outside. This is the same arena we wrestle in every three weeks, and we tear the house down every three weeks. Focus on that. Do what we do better than anybody in the industry at that time, and we'll be fine. But, you know, it's easier for me to say because I've been on so many pay-per-views. Terry Funk had been on so many pay-per-views. But there was a, 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 a pile that had sort of descended on the dressing room leading into that pay-per-view where nerves started overtaking the dressing room. Um, Pitbull number two was, it looked like he was going to vomit before he went out. And about 15 minutes before we were supposed to go to the ring, he was so nervous that Francine started getting nervous. And when she started getting nervous, they started making me nervous because, you know, they, like they, they, Pitbull couldn't remember the finish, and, you know, Francine was afraid that she might screw something up, and it just sort of like becomes a cancer in the dressing room. 
and, and so in hindsight, looking back, that how once, not just in my match, but for the entire show, how the company delivered in spades, you know, for its inaugural show, where the dressing room, the vast portion of the guys had not ever been on pay-per-view uh, or live television, for that matter. You know, and yet, overall, I would say more people give barely legal thumbs up than would give it thumbs down. And, uh, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't an easy slog. You know, there was – the dressing room that night was very tense, uh, very unlike an ECW dressing room. Once that bare legal got out of the way, we were fine. You know, everybody sort of had it under the belt and, you know, knew what to expect the next time. But that first one, there were an awful lot of nerves floating around the dressing room that night. I just want to read you something really quick here because this is the beauty of the Internet that I could pull this up and have this in front of me. So if you allow me about 45 seconds here. There are 17 million homes that have the availability for this show tonight that will pay $20, hopefully for the privilege to see you guys do what you have done for three and a half years. Thank Terry Funk for all he has done for this company, for helping to put us on the map, for being unselfish in selfish times, for taking the young guys and showing them a better way. Tonight we have a chance to say, yeah, you're right. We're too extreme. We're too wild. We're too out of control. We're too full of our own shit. Or we have a chance to say, hey, fuck you, you're wrong, fuck you, we're right, because you have made it to the dance, because believe me, this is the dance. When you hear that, what does that mean to you? Paul Heyman. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it like a Paul Heyman speech. Um, you know, it, it was exactly encapsulating what, you know, up to that point, remember, again, I said like earlier, you know, Vince McMahon was after calling us the bingo hall company, the minor leagues, the small pond. Uh, and in spite of not having a billion-dollar corporation behind us, in spite of not having a national outlet, in spite of all the things that were stacked against ECW, here we were on pay-per-view. Uh, and, you know, there was the X factor. And, and, and I've often said, you see me say it on Twitter almost daily, the fans, the fans were digging and finding they, it wasn't like we were bringing ECW to them. They were digging to find ECW. They were hearing about it through the sheets, uh, the fledgling internet at that time, uh, the prodigious trading of tapes back and forth around the world. Uh, and it was this underground flavor, this, you know, this illegal thing almost that you shouldn't be allowed to see. And yet somehow if you work hard enough, you can see it. And the fans fought for it and found it. And if not for the fans, we would have been another indie company that came and went in Philadelphia. And instead, because of the fans, uh, we've got, you know, we've often called them the sixth man on the bench. The fans made ECW the legend that it became, the lightning in a bottle that it became. And, you know, I often get asked, you know, can it happen again? You know, anything can happen again. You know, it's, uh, you know, a meteorite can strike the planet tomorrow and sanitize it of, of life. Uh, who knows? I mean, anything can happen twice. But the fact that all those things lined up properly, uh, we had an incredible mind in Paul Heyman writing the general storylines. 
We had an incredible dressing room of talent that was executing and implementing those storylines. And we had the best goddamn fans on the planet that were following ECW and digging to find it. And in spite of all the odds stacked against us, you know, it, it was like Taz said, FTW. It was fuck the world. Fuck Vince McMahon. ECW is here. And, you know, we're staking our claim. It, it really was, you know, magic in a bottle. Now, before we hand it over to John here to get to a little S franchise, anything, and we get to the wrap up in the show, the one guy who did not wrestle on the show, but he did appear as a color commentator was Tommy Dreamer. Now, what did it yeah. mean to not have Tommy wrestling on the show itself? Because he was obviously one of the architects of building what you guys got to in Barely Legal. I can't remember the specifics as to why Tommy didn't wrestle, if he was hurt or uh, if there was somebody angled with him at the time. I can't remember, you know, the storyline specifically to tie. Like when I, and I know all the storylines, but what was the storyline at that particular point? I can't recall. Uh, but I think having him in the booth, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that was the first time that Joey Styles ever had a color commentator with him, wasn't it? Um, he had Taz do matches when Taz was still hurt a few years earlier, and while Taz was kind of moving into the, uh, the, the he does the infamous line where he says, "This is the voice of Peter Sinertia, but you know him better as Taz." And that's the first right. time he revealed, I think, having a partner in the booth with him. But I, I'm just try- I'm looking it up. I don't recall. Maybe John, you might know, but uh, I know that it ended up playing into the finish with uh, Terry Funk. But I don't know if it was meant purposely or if Tommy, unfortunately, had an, an injury at the time. John, do you happen to recall why Tommy was not wrestling on the show? No, I, I don't remember at all. I was actually thinking that he didn't really have a real, like, big storyline that was, like, pay-per-view worthy at that point. But it's weird they wouldn't just throw him on the card against anybody. So I wonder if there's some sort of backstory where he might have been hurt or, or whatever reason he might not have been used. Obviously, they they made him a commentator on the show, but it is weird that uh, you know their one of their golden boys wasn't actually used as a wrestler on the pay per view. Well, yeah, absolutely. My guess is because Tommy really was the quintessential babyface for ECW at the time, uh, as he was for most of his time there, if not all the time he was there. Um, my guess is he there was probably an injury, uh, and if not that that Paul felt strongly that as our first foray into pay-per-view, that as good as Joey was, that, you know, wrestling fans were so familiar with having a color commentator, you know, it's whether it was Jesse Ventura, Bobby the Brain Heenan or whoever, that there was always somebody to bounce off of and have sort of a chemistry of back and forth. You know, Joey Styles, I mean, so everybody understands this is nothing against Jim Ross or Lance Russell or Gordon Soley or any of the Bob Cottle or any of the phenomenal guys, Joey Styles was, was really exemplary at what he did uh, to, to go out there and do that. But, but my guess is that Paul thinking that as our first time out of the gate in pay-per-view, uh, even though we kept the, 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 the chemistry of the show pretty much the same, that, you know, the, the average fan sitting at home is going to want to hear a color commentator and bouncing things back and forth. And who better to have in the booth at that time 
than Joey Styles, uh, with Joey Styles, than Tommy Dreamer, who was the, like I said, the quintessential babyface. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check into that and see if I can find out by episode 45. But I believe that, uh, just off, if I had to guess off the top of my head, that probably was injured or had some something going on that precipitated him not being in the ring. And what better thing to do than to put him in the booth with Joey to supplant what I just said about uh, Paul and understanding the chemistry of the industry at that time. Now it's that time again for a little AFA, little ask franchise, anything. And I was going to go in a different direction. I was kind of thinking a different direction, but then I read your Twitter today where you, you know, where you said, you guys got to email this, but somebody actually didn't email it. They actually just wrote it on Twitter. His name is Mikey Messier. Interesting uh, name there. When you were teaming with Johnny Ace, the dynamic dudes, were you ever tempted to just clobber him with the skateboard and call it a day? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Mike. We, we honestly, Johnny and I had always been good friends. Uh, we got along great. Uh, you know, which was you know tough because you know, living with anybody twenty four hours a day seven days a week, 340, 343 days a year, gets tough. But uh, Johnny and I really had uh, a good chemistry. You know, we, we got along great uh, up to the point that our contracts with WCW at the time said that we had to be tanned, we had to have our hair bleached blonde, we had to have abs, we had certain, certain aspects of the contract. And I was getting up and going to the gym every day and killing myself. And I was getting bitched at by the company because Johnny didn't. And you know, last I checked, I don't have any kids at that time. And Johnny certainly isn't my kid. And he's not my ward. If you want to, if you want to bitch at somebody, bitch at him. And, uh, but no, Johnny and I always go along great. And I think that was part of the reason that we were able to, stick together through that. I mean, let's face it, that was, especially once Jim Hurd came up with the fantastic quotation marks, name of the dynamic dudes, uh, you know, it had pretty much uh, doomed that to failure. And uh, Eddie Gilbert and several other people had seen a different way forward with that turning us heel and and sort of, you know, going with it. You know, on a lesser scale, very similar to what Roman Reigns is, is experiencing today as Vince tries to push them uh, down the fans' throats. Um, nothing against Roman or, or what he's doing. I, I think it's nothing with Roman's performance. It has to do with uh, uh, how Vince had sort of pushed him, you know, again, quotation marks, to the beginning of his push, you know, with the suffering succotash and able to leave tall buildings with a single bound, he, he sort of set the fans from the very beginning against him. Uh, and, and in some ways, he, uh, WCW was the same thing with the Dynamic Dudes. Once they gave us the name, or I should say Jim Hurd gave us the name of Dynamic Dudes. But to answer uh, Messier, Mike Messier's question, uh, Johnny and I always go along very well. Uh, although I've, I haven't spoken to Johnny, I think the last time I spoke to Johnny uh, was around 2006, 7, 8, like in there somewhere, uh, when he was 
just starting his work with WWF, WWE, whatever it would be. Um, but, you know, we'd always had a, 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 a very good chemistry between us and got along great. It's funny with Johnny Ace. I saw this, uh, I saw a clip just in passing that when WCW was purchased and obviously Johnny Ace was, was working in the office and he came over and began working in the WWF office, like you just said, they have a shot of the WCW wrestlers at WrestleMania 18 uh, or WrestleMania 17, excuse me, when the WCW wrestlers came over and they have Johnny Ace just randomly sitting with the wrestlers. And it was just kind of funny because. You know, they, they have a graphic of this WCW superstars, and it was like Johnny Ace is there. So I was wondering if anybody at the time <laughs> noticed that Johnny Ace was in the mix sitting next to Lance Storm and Bill DeMott, you know, and, and Shane Helms and all these, like, young hotshot guys that were ready to, uh, you know, come in and take over the world. And Johnny Ace, who was in the office at the time, was sitting there as a WCW superstar. I don't know. I just, I just thought that was kind of funny because, uh, you know. Johnny Ace is a pretty big star in Japan after he left you, Shane. So I don't know. Maybe uh, the Dynamic Dudes could have had a uh, an international run uh, in the late '90s had you not been ripping <laughs> shit up in ECW. Yeah. Well, Johnny Johnny did. He had he had a good run in WC. Or, I mean, over in uh, all Japan uh, uh, with uh, Mrs. Bubba and Giant Bubba. Bubba, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know there was. Uh, you know, from my understanding, from what he had told me, that there was a, you know, he, he kept nice and tight with Mrs. Bubba, which is not a bad idea. Uh, but, you know, Johnny Johnny and I have always gotten along very well. And, uh, you know, was, uh, and, and, you know, what he had done after, you know, is obviously up to him. Uh, but at that time, as a snapshot, with the two those two young kids in WCW, uh, we got along great. I, I really have no bad memories of being with Johnny. We stay, in fact, we used to have a, a shitload of fun in the ring with the two of us and Brian Pillman and Tom Zank and, you know, so many other guys. It was just a lot of fun to be a kid at that time in the business. That's awesome. Now, so many great stories you've heard from you so far, and obviously more to come in the weeks and months to follow as we get to wrap up here in episode number 44. So if you want your answer uh, excuse me, you want your question answered. You can hit up Shane on Twitter, and if we find it, we will use it for Ask Franchise Anything, or you can just simply email the triple threat pod at gmail.com, and we will get your answer put into our large database filled with questions, and uh, when we get to it, we will get to it. But that was a Twitter poll from today. You know, when the franchise starts talking, people want answers. So that was a good one that we found this <laughs> afternoon. And obviously, you know, like I said at the top of the show, if you want to get our podcast, you can get them on so many different outlets. And I'm going to get a graphic out there that we're going to hand over to Shane. And we're going to tweet that bad boy out because if you can't find this show, then you're not listening to it right now. So I don't know who I'm talking to. But for, for seriousness, yeah. you can get it on Spotify. You can get it on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, Podbean, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, all the places you get your podcasts. We're on there. We're doing the two-man power trip of wrestling on Fridays. And, of course, we do the Triple Threat podcast released to you Tuesday morning or Tuesday night, depending on uh, when we get to record it. we got a very busy co-host who uh, a lot of traveling in his profession. <laughs> so give or take a couple hours on the recording. But if you want all the information on that, you can head to our website, which is tmptfwrestling.com. You can go to the Triple Threat podcast page. And you can get download links, YouTube videos, and links to the 
ever so popular pro wrestling tees store where Shane, your shirts are doing very, very well as the fans now have the opportunity to uh, pluck the franchise t-shirts off the pro wrestling tees site, which is uh, very nice to see. And uh, obviously can't go wrong with a little black and gold. I've had both events this past weekend and then on Twitter in the last uh, two days, I've had a lot of people asking about those and, you know, happy to see they're finally up on pro wrestling tees. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, take some of the pressure off of having to carry that inventory around with me to all the to all the events. But yeah, so anybody out there listening, if you've been looking for a, uh, a franchise t-shirts, uh, go head to the pro wrestling tees uh, site. Uh, you can get them there, and you can get them in black. You can get them in gold, and all the different classic uh, artworks that we had in the franchise, including the. Uh, uh, both God and the Devil have dibs on his soul T-shirt, the classic T-shirt. Uh, headed up there, including my good friend David uh, from uh, Africa. Uh, that's the place to get them, guys. So make wow. sure you head over there now to get them. That's awesome. Uh, see, that's the reach of pro wrestling tees. It's a beautiful thing that they can do that. And uh, obviously get your franchise shirts now. And if you want to support us, please head on over to TMPTofWrestling.com. Check out the TMPTCon2 page. We've got so many great stars coming to Richmond, Virginia on May 19th, including Kevin Nash and Eric Bischoff and Scott Hall and a lot of extreme friends of yours, Mikey Whipwreck, C.W. Anderson, and just announced this past week, New Jack is coming, Shane. New Jack. So I don't know if I should hide under the table or if I should batten down the hatches, but New Jack is on his way to uh, to Richmond as well. But that's coming up in the near future, so uh, definitely keep your eyes on TMPTCon. You know, and Shane, this is where I kind of like to pick your brain. Where are you going to be this weekend, and what's going on in the world of the franchise? Well, this weekend, uh, actually sort of another blast to the past. I'm my first tag team partner in the UWF, my first one on the road, Eddie Gilbert put me with a guy named Davey Haskins, and Davey Haskins, uh, Davey Rich, later on to be uh, uh, Johnny Rich's partner, and uh, we'll be wrestling together for the first time in decades. Uh, wow. This coming Saturday night in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then uh, Sunday uh, in Akron, Ohio, I'm going to be at a, uh, a charity event raising money for autism, and looking forward to that. So it's another big weekend for the franchise. Going to stay busy out there. Anybody knows, uh, not just for the autism uh, event this coming Sunday in Akron, but uh, in uh, uh, May, going to be down in Houston, first time in Texas in a long time, for the Boston for Autism show down there. So, you know, a lot of great stuff. You know, anytime I get to hang out with old friends like Davey Haskins, Davey Rich, uh, this coming weekend, this coming Saturday, and uh, – in Knoxville, and then uh, on Sunday for the autism show. Uh, looking forward to it. It's having a hell of a lot of fun now, and most fun I've had in a long time in my career. So looking forward to it, looking forward to seeing everybody out there this weekend. Definitely uh, say hi to our good friend uh, Glenn Jacobs, running for mayor down there in Knox County. So uh, definitely uh, give a wave to the big red machine if you're passing through. Uh, see him hell up yeah. Can you – can you imagine being a wrestling fan? I said this to John earlier today. Can you imagine being a wrestling fan and having Glenn Jacobs knock on your door to tell you that you need to vote for him for mayor of Knox County, Tennessee? <laughs> Can you even imagine that? 
the question the question I would have immediately would be, does he have the mask on? Does he have the voice synthesizer? And if so, he's got my vote. <laughs> I would think that he'd pull those out for – that's the swing voters. You know, those are the ones he's got to sway. He's, yeah. <laughs> he could do the fire gimmick. He could do everything uh, for those voters that aren't sure. Is that that would be the that would be the rib right there is to uh, to kind of swerve them and and put the mask on for the ones that are undecided. So, uh, but yeah, get Hell out. Oh yeah, support support Glenn Jacobs. He's a great friend of uh, of John and myself on the show, and and uh, we really uh, we we've seen him ha- take this campaign on full bore. So all the best with that. So Shane, Absolutely. you know that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. So please, you know, do what you do best. Take us out in only the way the franchise can as we march forward to a big old episode number 45 next week. Partner, the floor is yours. Big 44 episodes. You always say as a wrestling fan, you think you have what it takes to step up to the plate and ask the big questions. Well, next week for episode 45, I'm laying the gauntlet at your feet. Throw your questions here. See if you can stump the franchise. My guess you ain't got a snowball's chance in hell. Next week's episode 45, the forum's going to be yours for the fans. Until then, make sure you tune in or get your ass franchised. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.